This is the Bristol Cable. Our bar makes something like £250,000 a year. All of that goes straight back into charitable activities. But because things have changed so much, we are going to lose about £200,000 this year. I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. On the sidelines, a regular occurrence. Staggering that you think we should be supporting the bigger organisations with bars, cinemas and tourist activities. The councillors to stand up Those are the thoughts of Deputy Mayor Asher Craig after receiving criticism from Equity for reducing funding and removing it from certain institutions in the city. This week's guest on Bristol Unpacked is the CEO of the watershed, Claire Reddington, who saw £50,000 removed by the council. She's kicked back and criticised the council's decision and said that Bristol has no cultural strategy. The watershed has a perception of being a little bit of a middle-class cinephile place, a bit arty. Is it really connecting with the whole of the city? And cinema itself, with the rise of Netflix, Apple, Amazon and streaming services and the closure of major cinemas, including one in the town centre in Bristol, is it redundant? And does this actually affect the watershed? Could they play a role, fill the gap, start to show some films I like, like uh, Police Academy, uh, Fast and Furious, and also arts and culture in general? In this age of austerity, social care stuff is more important than the arts, is it? Claire Reddington thinks both are important and explains why. Enjoy. Hi, Claire. Hi. How are you doing? I am okay, thank you. As we talk, this will be put out just before Christmas. Are you getting a bit Christmassy? I am getting Christmassy. Normally, I don't put my Christmas tree up until the 15th, but this year we went early and I'm pretty happy about it. I reckon a lot of people have done that. I was seeing people in my road with their trees up last week of November. Do you reckon this is a bit of a post-COVID thing? Think People are thinking, oh, sod it, we need a bit of joy in our lives, so we're trying to do it a bit earlier? I don't know. Yeah, I think that post-COVID and the other sort of multiple crises we just need a bit of light bringing back in. Yeah, multiple is the right word, isn't it? It's one thing after another. You get off the canvas and there's something else. It's been um, difficult times and, and difficult times, dare I say, for your game, which is the arts. Yeah. You obviously... CEO of the watershed and before I go into the sort of politics a little bit and some of the council funding cuts and cuts in general to arts in this country for you coming out of lockdown that must have been really strange and arguably more difficult than for a lot of people because you know going to the cinema or going to a bar that's what sort of everything was stopped wasn't it? Yeah, so Watershed didn't stop entirely during um, lockdown. We did as much as we could online. We um, ran something called Bristol Arts Channel with Bristol World Vic. So we tried to reach our audiences and team up with other arts organisations across the city online. And the Pervasive Media Studio, which is part of Watershed, Mm. um, the community ran online to provide solidarity for each other. So there was a bit. A lot of our core function is our public building with people coming in watching the cinema interacting people and that stopped and it was nightmarish really Mm. and it was 
We never really knew when we were going to open. There was never any clear leadership coming from government about how to do things. I remember like sort of making up things all the time. How can we keep people safe? How can we make sure that they feel confident to come back into the venue? And so there was all that uncertainty. And then just the ongoing numbers of people that still had COVID, not testing. Mm. So we'd have loads of staff off sick. We make sure that we pay everybody from day one of sickness. No questions asked, because I think that's about being a responsible employer. And for Mm. me, you know, the last thing I want is people coming to work sick and spreading that around or sure. making themselves worse. So, that's yeah. a lot of stuff. That's a lot of stuff then, isn't it? I think as a CEO, sort of being the person that who's ultimately makes the decisions and sort of shoulders fall on, it's a tough role anyway, let alone in those unprecedented times. How, how did you cope with it personally? It is tough. I mean, I do, the watershed team is amazing. And so it was really collaborative decision making, but ultimately the CEO has to carry the can for anything. And that responsibility for people's jobs, for some people wanted us to open it up straight away. Some people were scared of coming back to the cinema. It was really a lot. Like it felt felt really heavy, the, the sort of nervousness of making the right decision for a lot of people was really difficult. It wasn't a fun time. Sure. Somebody wrote to me, lots of people write to me, or often men who have some idea about how I should run Watershed better. <laughs> they sort of unsolicited advice. And someone wrote to me and said, you're not running a nuclear reactor. Why don't you just open? It was just weird for everybody, wouldn't it? Let alone trying to run an organisation like you are, as you say, managing staff situation, managing when you can and can't open, having no guidance nationally, everybody in kind of limbo. And is there anything that's changed? You know, the culture of worker, I, I would argue, has changed quite a lot post-lockdown. Is there anything at the watershed that you, because of that, you you do differently generally now? I mean, so there is a lot more working from home. Obviously, not everyone can work from home at Watershed. If you're involved with the public-facing parts of the building, then mm. your job needs you in. Um, and we do ask everyone who works here to come in at least two days a week because I think it's really important to see the audience and to feel them, to feel what it feels like in the building, to remain honest and connected. But definitely there's more flexibility from working at home and definitely using more hybrids means that we can stay connected to some of the communities we work with across the world, which is really exciting. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Some people maybe listen who don't really know loads about the watershed or about you and, and who you are. In terms of the whole development across the docks, I remember when there was nothing there. <laughs> and then I remember when the watershed was there and it was the only thing that was there. It's been transformed really in the last 10, 20 years, but you're still there still thriving and still at the kind of heart of that area. Yeah, so Watershed was 40 years old last year, so has has seen a lot. When Watershed was set up, there was no Perros Bridge. The Arnafini was there, but really, I guess that was the two sort of beacons. I remember coming to Watershed when I was young, and what is now the curious was all a car park, and there were just people doing donuts and smoking (laughs) in the car park was the sort of the main thing that happened. And it was pretty bleak around here. And the people who ran Watershed during that time, and, and especially Dick Penny, who was the CEO before me, just really over long periods of time invested in the animation of the harbour side, trying to make it a, 
a safe place, an attractive place, a place of like mixed use so that mm. there wasn't all just one thing down here. And it, it's really paid off. It's such a, a vibrant and brilliant part of the city now. And you've been there for 20 years, is that right? Working, but obviously CEO for four or five years is that correct yeah like i i always think i can't remember how long partly because the covid years create a great blur but yes yeah, I've, yeah. I've been here 20 years i started in a six months project management role where i was working between hewlett-packard and watershed on a sort of computing r&d program um, and i've done loads of different jobs i've worked in kind of community filmmaking but mostly around the creative technology parts of watershed and i took over as, as ceo i was creative director for a good couple of years and then took over as ceo when dick penny left and has that been comfortable for you <laughs> well i didn't really want the job but i also didn't want anyone else to have the job so i took it and it was it's taken me a long time to feel confident and comfortable with my own leadership style and the things mm. that i think i bring but actually covid was quite helpful in that because all bets were off there was no like one way of doing things and i quite like uncertainty i'm quite comfortable in uncertainty and emergence in, in, in being responsive. So I think I feel comfortable now. And I've thought a lot about it. Is 20 years too long to be somewhere? Is it embarrassing? Should I have left to run a big organization in London or something by mm. now? And what I think is that if you want to make change, then having a really deep understanding and care and trust for a place really gives you like a solid footing to do that. And I do think mm. the culture sector needs change. And so I feel excited about what's next. For, the, for those that don't go to the watershed, there are various cinemas there. There's a bar, restaurant, you have to film me in if I'm missing stuff. Um, there's <laughs> little conference rooms and stuff like that. And then you've got this, what's it called, the thing at the back you said, the, the, the creative media hub, the yeah. media, which is a kind of multi-art place where so you, you, I know you have different people that are seconded or have it's, placements with you yeah well it's a workspace work so we space, essentially yeah. give people give artists creatives technologists free workspace to help them to think through new ideas mostly using creative technology and we have loads of people who support them to do that and help them find funding and just really keep art in the city center there's a lot about bristol being gentrified it's really expensive to rent office space in the city center and we think it's really important to have a community that can share and collaborate right here in the heart of Bristol. And for you then, why is the arts important? What does it do? How does it influence and impact people? Yeah, I think it's vital for well-being to feel the sense of togetherness that, that a cultural experience gives you, it enables you to sit and connect with other people around ideas, around stories, around the kind of messy business of being human. I think at the moment, when we think about those sort of multiple challenges that society is facing, we're going to have to imagine different ways of being, like different things that we can do, different ways to face the future. And for me, again, art is really important in that. Telling, convincing stories about different things, different ways we could be will help us with things like the climate crisis. And I think unleashing young people's creative voices, whether they go on to be artists or whether they go into any job, having 
confidence to think collaboratively to problem solve all of that stuff is so prevalent in arts and arts education and it's really necessary and was it something that was really important to you growing up so am i right in thinking you grew up in henbury you're is that right no i'm no? nailsy nailsy so but you're from the area so for you was that something that shaped you as well that sort of led you into working that field Absolutely. My English and drama teachers actually both still come to Watershed and I see them and they come to events and it makes me really proud. But definitely English and drama were like a lifeline to me. I was also the editor of the school newspaper and Nailsy Comprehensive. It was a pretty ordinary school. The ability to connect with the arts gave me a way to imagine all of the other things that I could do. For me, Nailsy wasn't a massively interesting place growing up. It's changed quite a lot now. But I came into Bristol, I went to Bristol Old Vic, I would go to London and see things, just really wanted to connect with that diversity of human experience. And would you say that the arts in Bristol and in the country is still seen as a bit of a middle class thing? I think it's fair that it's seen as that. I don't think it's true that it is that all of the time, although certainly there are large organisations that are probably staffed by lots of people from private schools. But I think everyone is trying really hard to change that. And there's a brilliant local academic and author called Kirsty Sedgman, and she's written a book recently about how the arts became like that and how really working classes were spelled from arts and culture. Yeah, because of course it wasn't that, was it? You think about the, the origins of cinema, people would go and watch three films in a day with a penny. That, that was a working class movement. The theatre was a working class movement. You think about this city, you think about art as in traditional art, graffiti, that was a working class yeah. thing. You know, it feels like along the way, perhaps there has been some sort of co-opting of this yeah. and, and we've got this slightly skewed. Would that be fair? Absolutely. I think that there was um, the notion of etiquette, like the notion of how you behave in a cultural mm. space, like you have to sit quietly, don't talk, don't stand up. All of those kind of behaviours is absolutely about excluding people from mm. cultural experiences. And I think that lots of us are spending time thinking about how we unpack and rewind all those rules to make people feel comfortable to step over the threshold. Yeah. And what do you think the perception of the watershed is in the wider city on that particular issue about broadening art and culture out to working class people? I think it's mixed. I think that inevitably it's really hard with an organisation like Watershed because we do lots of different things. So sometimes we're a bit confusing to people. People do know us as a cinema and that's great. Like we do our £5 tickets for young people. So actually the people who've come back strongest post-COVID is our young audiences, which are just Mm. growing and growing. So if you ask young people what Watershed is like, they would hopefully, I think, say welcoming, inclusive, a place for them. I think for older people, there's a kind of nostalgia about Watershed as an art house cinema it is for cinephiles and so we're doing a lot of work to make sure that people feel that it is for them that it is welcoming um with like this weekend we've got a free screening of the new chicken run film for residents of barton house for instance because they're living in hotels 
with nothing to do with their kids. And so we want to show people that watershed is for them. And so we're just, we're trying really hard. And, you know, you, can- you have made, I would say you have, uh, I th- if I think about the connecting to different communities, and I've seen and noticed this, I would say that probably the watershed, particularly in terms of uh, ethnicity, ethnic diversity, has made a real strong concerted effort in the last 15 years. And you can see that change. I I hope so. I think we try hard. We partner with organisations who are doing brilliant work in the city, people like St Paul's Carnival, Black Southwest Network, to Mm. try and like make meaningful partnerships over time that resonate with people. And I hope that pays off. You you mentioned gentrification, that there is this sort of inner ring a little bit in the city now, that some of those estates to the north and the south of the city, do you feel that you have been effective in in engaging with those communities? And if not, how do you think you could do so more? I think that class is a really weird thing in the UK and that we're bad at talking about it. We're really bad at engaging around it. And it's something that I know that all cultural organisations are trying to count so that we can understand the data involved of who works for us and who visits us so that we can start to make differences and also to act on. So we've had, for instance, partnerships with the library in Hartcliffe. Um, We've done work where we do a playable city project, which is where we put in a piece of public art into a, a public space we always do that outside of the city center um, yeah. our young people's projects we work with south bristol youth network we work with the amazing paul holbrook who's a filmmaker from hartcliffe oh don't um, give him a big ad don't tell him to take say he's amazing <laughs> so and and as part of our 40th birthday we did loads of work bringing audiences in and asking them those kinds of questions like how yeah. should we reach people how can we um make sure that people know that they're welcome here so we're trying i think it's better to try hard consistently over time than to make big promises and something I've learned is inclusion takes a long time it takes careful investment and like yeah. real consistency rather yeah because than- if you're knee-jerk if you there's a knee-jerk reaction sometimes you miss the beat a little bit and it can be seen as or actually be quite tokenistic whereas if you've got I, I agree with you if you've got like an actual longer term strategy of how to do that in a sustainable way that's far more effective. We've definitely been guilty of having money for projects to do work. And then when those projects end, there is no sustained provision, like ways Mm. of keeping people engaged, supported, looked after. And I think that's not the kind of creative ecology we want to be part of. So we're thinking really deeply about that. One of the filmmakers we work with, sorry, a creative we work with called Joseph Wilkes, who's a brilliant disabled artist called it caroism a notion that your sort of hero-like behavior around care that stops as soon as the money runs out is a real problem in our sector and disability particularly actually is an area that watersheds worked really hard on over a long period of time i think that the nature of third sector in general the funding cycles of stop and start almost creates that yeah. situation where things are always sustainable because you can't fund something you've got no money for. So it is tricky, I think. It is totally tricky. And the mission creep that happens through funding cycles where they always want you to do something new. So you're always pretending that the thing that's really great that you're doing, it's new when maybe it isn't. It's really important to keep doing. I desperately, there's a few funders out there now that are thinking in sort of 10-year life cycles 
especially for people who are kind of infrastructure, so who are providing kind of support services. And, and I think that's a really important thing to do. And you mentioned funding. Let's move into that. There's been a big, I think, obviously, stuff's been spoken about locally, but even nationally, really, looking at how much the government really cares about the art and culture sector, significant reduction in funding, significant, I would say, reduction in value, perhaps. What's your feeling about some of the noises that have come out from central government around this? Yeah, and I think the central government have rhetoric around valuing the arts and have put a lot of money into kind of levelling up type things, which is always tricky for Bristol because Bristol isn't a levelling up area. And yet we have some of the most sort of significant areas of deprivation butted up, as everyone will know, against areas of real kind of economic flourishing. So we're a tricky city and there is money that's been putting into levelling up. But for organisations like Watershed, we can't apply for that stuff and everyone knows inflation is a complete nightmare at the moment everyone will have felt that at home in their own kind of expenditure and there's no inflation in government grants so well, the why public- can't you sorry let me just come out why can't you apply for stuff like that because it's uh there's there are specific postcodes that the so specific areas of the country that have been designated leveling up areas and bristol isn't one bristol is not one right even though there are as you said i think top 10 percent areas of deprivation are in South Bristol, yeah. but we're affected because there are more affluent parts of the city. Totally. So okay, as but but do you, did you not think there's been a slight war on the arts and culture that it's being seen as a sort of a woke, liberal, woke. middle <laughs> yeah. class type thing a little bit? And there's a lot of that rhetoric going around? Yeah, God, the sort of the culture wars, the the kind of identity politics that are in play around arts and culture at the moment. It's so tricky, so divisive, and a complete red herring to mm. any of the kind of meaningful work that gets done. And I definitely think art and culture suffer from it. I think Bristol suffers from it. We've got Labour Mayor, Labour MPs. I guess that is not massively popular in Westminster. So I feel that as a city, we're quite underrepresented in politics, and that feels like we're being punished. Also in the region, there is a sort of wider feeling that Bristol has had all the goods and has had all the investment and the money, so it should be someone else's turn, one of the Mm. other places in the southwest. And I have loads of sympathy for that, but it feels a bit like to me that Bristol has coasted along on this notion that we are a city of creativity and innovation. And about two or three years ago, we stopped investing in that. And Mm. we're sort of at the end of that being something that we can shout about, I think. And if you apply that directly to the watershed itself, its location being in the city centre perhaps has gone against it in this round of funding with directly from the council. I know you're not getting 50,000 that you would have done. And there's been a a kind of pivot in terms of what organisations are being uh, funded directly for arts and culture, which I think off the top of my head are Trinity, Tobacco Factory. This is some of them. I think St. Paul's Carnival and a couple of other ones, which I've missed, I think. And you haven't. And I just wonder whether not being in an area of deprivation or not being in a locality like that and being in the centre, firstly, has perhaps gone against you. Yeah. And secondly, arguably the same thing, really, a vic- like you're like Bristol scene, a, a sort of victim of your own success. You don't need the money now because you're, you're a thriving organisation that's been doing great stuff for years. 
Yeah, it's really tricky, isn't it? So those organizations that have got funding are brilliant and I'm so happy for them. I think it's really exciting. But you're right, there's a kind of rhetoric that the city center has already had too much. And actually, one of the things we've seen post-COVID is a drop-in footfall in the city centre. City centre venues are also suffering from the clean air zone impact. I'm a big fan of any environmental measures, but there has been an impact on the city centre and also the sort of terrible public transport. It's incredibly difficult to get home from the city centre at night. We definitely see early rushes, but very quiet late evenings because people just aren't out and about like they were. So I would say that the city centre needs some careful strategy and planning that I haven't seen in effect. And I think that will... Uh, You've said, I think you've said directly, it's a direct quote from you, Bristol doesn't have a clear cultural strategy. I think... This is in in response to the the, the funding cuts and decisions made by the council, yeah? I haven't seen something that is valid post-COVID in the multiple kind of challenges that we've got that, for instance, thinks about what are the unintended consequences of not funding city centre venues? What might happen as a result of that funding being taken away? The other thing that I guess has been a bit challenging is that notion of like why would we fund commercial venues and I, yeah I've... can i can i read a quote out from that yeah because uh, yeah, that's the deputy mayor asha craig she said because equity have been critical of the decision to remove funding from the old vic from the watershed and other places councillor asha craig deputy mayor said it's disappointing to see some organization criticize very well considered recommendations made based on applications submitted it's staggering that equity think we should be considering the bigger organisations with bars, cinemas and tourist activity as the budget crisis continues to worsen and the government continues to punish local authorities, this situation will only get worse. Is that, is that a slight pop at you, bars, cinemas and tourist activities? It sounds like yeah? it, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What, what did you think when you, when you read that? Um, I felt really sad because, well, and slightly surprised because that wasn't part of the criteria of the application. So there wasn't anywhere that said, like, can you tell us about your economic viability and that will be part of the assessment process. I think it also misunderstands how the creative economy works. Like, we have to have a bar. The bar subsidizes the other work that we do, the, the work giving young people access to culture, you know, I think our bar makes something like £250,000 a year. And absolutely all of that goes straight back into charitable activities. But because things have changed so much, we are going to lose about £200,000 this year. So we are doing everything we can to change our business. 200000 and yeah. so 50 of that's from the council. And yeah. what's the, the under 150 from? rest is just from what's happened to utilities like our our electric bill has gone up ten thousand pounds a month it's what's happened to the cost of food it's wages obviously we pay real living wage because i think it's a really important part of access and inclusion but that's again a 10 percent rise this year so everything the cost of everything goes up we of course and is that factored in sorry to jump in clay i know you did get money from the arts council as well in terms of the grants that are giving out is inflation and cost of living factored into that type no right flat so essentially in real terms a part every year I see. I'm with you. Okay. And so so we are working really hard. We've made savings and increased our own income by about 
250 grand this year. So we, so we would have lost about half a million. And so we've turned stuff around. But to be able to keep delivering the social and cultural impact that we do, we need... And that would be the social purpose, because obviously this is yeah. about social purpose, isn't yeah. it? I think... So you would push back at you know we, we you know we've just we 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 show films we've got a bar we've got a cafe there's a social purpose well, through everything you do. The very na- so we're a charity and um, by law a charity can only spend its money on charitable activities. So of course we have money coming in like that makes us a good charity, but that money goes to access inclusion, providing a sort of social infrastructure, all of the work we do around careers all of that. And so we are for purpose. And so to hear that narrative is a tricky one. It's pretty distressing. Do you need the money more than some of these other organisations, though? That feels a little bit like a kind of Tory capitalist question, like like let's let's put ourselves in competition and um, and see who wins. It's not for me. It's not the Hunger Games. For me, a really good cultural strategy thinks about the system or the ecology. So the fact that we need some big players because big Mm. players employ lots of people. They get brand and profile in different ways. They um, provide different kinds of career opportunities. We but your really turnover need- would be a lot more than those other organisations yeah. I listed, though, yeah? Yeah, and we really need grassroots. So from a council's it. perspective, they're probably thinking, who needs the money more? I, I guess we gift free space to 150 artists in the city centre. That is quite a lot of value and impact. I, I think it's about having a strategy which recognises the interconnections between us and those other organisations, rather than saying we should fund only one type of thing. So a bit silo thinking for you, then not joined up thinking. I think that's what the city needs now. I'm really excited that there's going to be a new head of culture and that there's a time to sort of reboot around how do we think about that. As Asha said, it's only going to get worse in the short term. Mm. So we need some really joined up thinking. Watershed isn't seeking to get the council to overturn their decision. What I'm really worried about now, obviously, is trying to make up the money somewhere else. But also, how do we support a thriving city? How do we come together to make sure that the stuff we're all doing is joined up and appreciated? I just would love some leadership that sort of says, we really value you. Well done. This is the advert bit, mate. We've got a new campaign at the Bristol Cable. It's called Beyond the Bullshit. And it's basically putting up two fingers to the right-wing media, millionaire-owned newspapers. Don't buy into their whipping up of division and hatred. Become a member of Bristol's independent, community-owned media, the Bristol Cable. people that are making decisions in leadership positions in the city perhaps probably don't have an interest in arts as much as some other leaders have done in the past and lean perhaps a little bit more perhaps to the attitude which as well it is it's just a, it is a middle class kind of you know, the old vic watershed it's it doesn't speak to the communities blah blah that that type of thinking i don't know I and whether that, that will change post may I, I potentially hope- 
though. I think there has been a lack of consistency in that message. So I have heard Marvin speak really powerfully about the impact of art and culture. And I've also heard messaging about that notion of kind of um, high art, posh, uh, organizations that are that aren't relevant and and none of our evidence sort of bears that out like all of us are reaching communities collaborating and so evidence-based consistent decision sort of leadership would be great do you think it's an instinct then as an instinct of like, mm, yeah this is not i'm more comfortable in certain spaces not in others therefore i will support the spaces that i personally or collectively feel i can connect with a little bit I don't know. I mean, I see Marvin in in Watershed most weeks coming to events, coming to the mm. community partnerships that we've got. So yeah. I... Uh, so it's not, okay, so it's not that he doesn't like you as an organisation then. No, I don't think so. It could be, but but I don't think so. I think I've also got a lot of sympathy for how difficult it must be yeah. to be making decisions. Well, yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, I, I've got some stats. I mean, it's, it's, there's a 40% cut in cultural investment in five years. And that that's huge, isn't it? And, and the cuts are coming left, right and centre from yeah. national government. They are in a difficult situation. And I suppose if you've got to cut something, whether that's social care or, or programmes that are directly impacting upon poverty and areas of deprivation, or you're going to cut um, an art cinema, then you can get where they're coming from a bit, can you? Well, the council aren't funding our cinema. <laughs> They're funding our community <laughs> outreach and engagement activities. Yeah. And okay, guess, but you get my point, yeah? I do, but I think, again, that it's really easy to fall into those kinds of binaries. And I, yeah. the government is definitely putting people in that position, but I don't think it's a choice. We need thriving communities. Arts and culture contribute to well-being, economic development, mm. But they've got to cut somewhere, Claire, haven't they? They, there is, they have to cut somewhere. And I suppose there is an argument, I'm not saying this is my opinion, that art and culture is a privilege. There's a class context to it. it there are services that are less likely to be cut than those. So it's a difficult situation that they've been put it, into. It's really, or it's an awful situation, and I am very glad that it's not my decision to make. I guess it's worth reflecting that there are places around the country, Leeds, Manchester, that are taking another point of view, which is if we invest in culture, it will have a net benefit on all those other stuff. That's a critical point. I wanted to ask you that, hey, Bristol, and it's and not just the arts in general. I think sometimes there's a rhetoric in the city, which is we have to do this. Um, because it's been bestowed upon us from national government, which is partly true, but it is still is a local decision made by a local authority that decides where to cut and where not to. And I wanted to know really how other cities, big cities, are are, are looking at culture. And you're, you're, so you're saying it's in certain cities it's higher up the priority yeah. list? Manchester are amazing at investing in culture in ways that are really meaningful, joined up and appropriate. They really get that the kind of ecology. Leeds is definitely doing that too. Both of those are levelling up areas. So I imagine that they have access to different funding as well. And then you've got places like Birmingham who are also having a really difficult time. So it's patchy across the country. Bristol is by no means sort of acting out of step um, but there are others who've taken different choices and there is no as we speak at the moment there is no head of culture in the council you said that's changing is that changing soon yeah i believe that the recruitment process is underway for that which is exciting okay and do you feel 
with the change in the mayoral system, where perhaps a committee system, you've got more voices and more people to lobby towards, are you confident that the watershed will be better positioned and, and also art and culture in the city when we move into that system more? I don't know. I personally was pro-mayor. I remember how the committee system used to work before. Yeah, well, you've been here 20, well, you're from Bristol. A lot of people that aren't from the city that come in that are quite anti-evangelical about the mayoral system weren't around then, though, were they? Yeah, and it did, like, the, the committee system didn't work before. The reason we went to a mayor is because the committee system ended up, we were quite, like, equally balanced in political parties, so there was a lot of indecision and And I really feel like things have moved. Of course, I'm a bit critical, but also when you look at the impact that Marvin and his cabinet have made around inclusion in the city, it's substantial. George Mm -hmm. made a huge contribution around the kind of brand and the, the way that people perceived the city. It used to be a place where people thought you'd come to retire, and that's not true now. And we also feel really proud of the work that the city is doing around environmental sustainability. And that's got there's real city leadership around that. And you think the mayoral system has been able to draw, because you've got that visible leadership and being able yeah. to drive that forward. Because definitely a lot of people in the city, there is a debate. You brought a Barton House around where do you... If you spend an awful lot of time outside the city, which both mayors did, really, you're out of touch with what's happening on the ground. However, part of the role is to, to coin a phrase, put Bristol on the map. And definitely, you're right. I remember looking at, if you do like a package tour to India and there's like the Golden Triangle, there's Delhi, and those same equivalents to our region usually included Bath, but never included Bristol. Yeah. And that's changed now. And that's a lot, I think, to do with having a more of a global presence. And that sort of stuff does matter. And I think it does filter down as well. And that arguably could be lost. I absolutely agree. For me, the the key to any business or council is to be locally rooted and globally connected, especially if what you're trying to do is to bypass London. So a lot of kind of um, rhetoric around the UK is how do we get to London? How do we compete with London? Bristol's never going to compete with London, but we can be a player on a global stage in a slightly different way. And so I think it is important. I think we're kind of a little bit um, victims of the north-south divide debate a little bit as well, because we sort of get lumped in with the south-east and London. And I think the West Country is quite unique and we have our own issues and our own struggles. And I, and I think probably there's an equal amount of disdain for London and Londoners here. There's a probably is in Yorkshire or in or in Manchester a bit. I've been slightly tongue-in-cheek there, but I think that we sort of get missed out a little bit. I absolutely think that. And of course, we've got this sort of rural nature of a lot of yeah. the region, which has its own massive challenges. And I think it's hard for Bristol to get any sort of recognition or attention around those things, I think. I want to talk just a little bit about cinema. I think that's what, as a kid, that's what I would probably associate the watershed in its original conception as. There's a problem with cinemas in general, isn't there? Now, we've just had the biggest cinema in the city that's closed, the um, showcase. And with Netflix and they're making their own stuff, same as Amazon and Apple. And is there a danger that cinema's dying on its arse a little bit? Um, 
Uh, yes and no. It's a complicated picture, and I don't think we quite know what's happening yet. Definitely during lockdown, lots of people took out streaming subscriptions, and definitely the streamers themselves started to commission or buy up films. But for instance, we're screening the new Chicken Run that Ardman obviously made. That will be on Netflix over Christmas, but that hasn't affected how many people want to see it in a cinema because that's a slightly different experience. The notion of coming together. Together, seeing something on a big screen, seeing something without second screening. So there's a kind of attention and focus to watching something in a cinema. For Watershed, I think that people value the curation and the atmosphere around the film. The stuff that's popular here often has a Q&A, so the filmmaker... Yeah, it's slightly different experience, isn't it, at the watershed? Yeah. And I, I remember one of the first times going, and if you've ever sat in the front row with a stand-up comedian and you're just like, oh, my God, don't talk to me kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know there was a Q&A and there was about 10 people there and it was like the, the door was closed. <laughs> right, <laughs> let's ask a question. I was like, oh, my God, like that. and I just felt completely out of my depth. And that. But people go for that, don't they? It's, a, it's an experience, the type of films you show aren't the same in mainstream cinemas. I mean, partly because we don't need to put them Mm. on because they're really adequately shown in many screens around the city. But yeah, Yeah. we try to add some value. We think about a film as the sort of start of a conversation, uh, a place of inspiring future filmmakers. Um, So putting that added value stuff, I don't want to scare people though. When we do a QA, and a it's usually a preview. So that means it's usually not out yet. So most people would have an idea that a QA and a is happening. Recently, for instance, we had Tilda Swinton doing um, a Q&A about the new film they were in and people were definitely expecting to see Tilda but it just sort of adds to the the buzz around the film we do a lot of kind of influencer screenings as well so getting people in to watch stuff so that they can tell their friends about it again that sort of demystification yeah. process sure so when I was talking to Mark Cosgrove, who, who is, is the guy, that, he's been there quite a long time, isn't yes. he, running the, um, the cinemas? Because I still think there's a challenge to get people from the four corners of Bristol to attend. Having sort of like water said, sort of satellite sites or sister sites across the city in some of these areas, like pop-ups and stuff, is that something that you've done or would consider? It's something that we're definitely thinking about. I think that there is complication around it because you don't want to do it badly. Um, one of the yeah. things that people like about coming to Watershed is that the quality of the image and the sound. So you don't want to be like, oh, great, we're in a community centre, let's put a crap projector out because we're about a kind of quality engagement with film but it's definitely something we're doing more of and some of the more experiential cinema stuff as well over the summer we worked with compass presents to do a film screening in the gallery's car park for instance and it was so popular and so thinking about different places for putting things is yeah. is really important too there is a sort of chin stroking sort of middle class cinephile vibe a little bit in the discussions and art house films and stuff like that so perhaps some people feel this is not for me but you mentioned him yourself Paul Holbrook Hartcliffe boy when I went to watch one of his first films down there it was like the half of Hartcliffe game and that's because of him and who he is so I think this filmmaker themselves also has a role to play who they are in the city to bring new audiences as well yeah Yeah, and showing those kinds of authentic films. We did an event with the um, Bristol 
bus boycott pioneers. We've just put a, a cinema seat dedication to each of them into yeah. Cinema 3. And so that filled up with the family, friends, people involved with that. So you can build communities around those kinds of titles. And then what we're trying really hard to do is to make sure people feel welcome and excited to come outside of that as well. So they return. It isn't just a sort of one-off. In, in the film that I made, I, I spoke to Vic Ecclestone, uh-huh. who died quite recently. He was a teacher in Hartcliffe School for yeah. years. And he was doing Shakespearean plays in Hartcliffe and stuff yeah. like that. And he was absolutely passionate about that the high arts are not the bastion of people from the upper middle classes and upper classes. You know, you have a duty and responsibility to bring this to people from areas of deprivation and working class communities. And I think that we've lost that a little bit now, where it's this sort of slightly inverted snobbery thing where there's a feeling that, oh, they're, 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 people wouldn't like this. Do you know what I mean? And the reason I say that is because when I say about the chin-scratching cinephile thing, Mark Cosgrove is a schemy working-class Glaswegian who's been running <laughs> yeah. that cinema for 25 years, isn't he? You can't meet many... Do you know what I mean? It's like, I think there's a, sometimes a bit of lazy stereotyping about stuff like that, that. It's not for us. It is lazy, and I think people who say that sort of thing maybe rarely actually go out and connect and look at who mm-hmm. is in the audiences. I mean, Barbie was great for us. We had... Yeah. a really exciting heavily queer dressed up audience who were out for we did a sort of barbie karaoke party we sold pink cocktails on the first night like that sort of stuff is breaking down and providing people with a bit of joy which is really important and so for for every salt burn another brilliant film there's also a, a chicken run dawn of the nugget or a barbie and it's important that we connect across that stuff Okay, so you will. It's not all multi-layered, alter films. Then can can we therefore see? I don't know. Police Academy, Mission to Moscow Nine, or uh, <laughs> what's this? What's the driving film that's got about three hundred? Well, like the uh, first in the series, seven hundred or something. Yeah, well, I, I doubt that. But we did just do a Rocky Horror Night that was pretty popular. So I think you might see more kind of late night cult classics from us. Can you, oh, the- I'd love you if you did. Like, do like Rocky or do like Papillon or I don't know. I reckon that would pull in a yeah. slightly different audience. Yeah, I think we're definitely looking at all of that, partly around audience development, but partly around money. Like that, those are good ways to make money. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So yeah, yeah. To make up that fifty grand loss. Exactly. Right. Yeah. There you go. If you showed all eleven Fast and Furious films, I reckon you could make a good thirty grand back of the fifty grand that the council withdrawn from you. All right. I'll tell Mark that's your main contribution, and watch his face. <laughs> that is my contribution to the cultural strategy, Claire. Thank you. All right. Yeah. I'm in. Right. One thing I want to talk to you about, and if, and it's something that's hit the press. For those that don't know. There's been a sit-in protest on a Feeney after it cancelled events. One was a talk with Loki and there was a cinema screening around Bristol Palestine Film Festival. And that's encountered an online petition. People, as I said, going in and protesting against them. You stepped in, didn't you, as the watershed? And I think you're showing the films there. So, So why? Well, we already host Bristol Palestine Film Festival. We have done since it started 11 years ago. So we already had a number Uh, of screenings planned. So it was fairly easy for us. We had the room in our screening calendar to take on. We took on one of the events, which was... But was was it a point of principle to do so? The Onofini took a stance, they said it was too politically loaded, and you stepped in and said, well, actually, you can show that film at the watershed. Was that a point of principle that you stepped in to do that? 
for, for us, there is a principle to support the Bristol Palestine Film Festival to help them as we have done for years. It is really challenging for charities to put on events which can be seen as political. Watershed about six years ago was reported to the Charities Commission for something really similar. And that cost us loads of time and loads of money. And in the end, the Charities Commission said, oh no, don't worry, you're fine. Because when you're a charity, there are rules about whether you can be political or not. So mm -hmm. it, it, it is a tough decision, but for us, we're a cinema and showing a film is not a political decision. So we worked really hard with the staff, with our own staff, to just make sure that we were rooting the discussion in the film itself, in the kind of narrative and the themes of the film. And the events, they happened last over the last two weekends and they went really well. They were all sold out. And, yeah. and I just really wish the story had been about how, brilliant and necessary and timely the Palestine Film Festival was rather than anything else. So do you disagree with the Arfini stance then? It wasn't the stance we took. Yeah. I don't want to pit you against them. But, but... I have sympathy for how hard yeah. the, the situation they're now in is. Like, we're a small sector, as we've already talked about. We're all a sector having a difficult time. And they took the decision that they thought was right. And that's a, a really yeah. hard one. Do you know how they felt about you stepping in? Could they have seen that as you thrown them under the bus a little bit? I really don't think so. I spoke to the team during the whole situation. So I think that they understand why we were able to do it. The Arnafini aren't a cinema. And so it's much easier for us to root that decision in our charitable remit. Sure. And they've been quite heavily criticised for, for doing so by with the organisers of the the actual the Facebook event of the city Bristol Arnafini has suddenly decided there is no room for politics in art and has cancelled the Bristol Palestine Film Festival. Their complicity reeks of cultural genocide, quite strong words. We want to make it very clear our intention is not to vandalise the space or any of the art on display. And the response from the Arnolfini, which we need to read, is we understand their disappointment. We are pleased that the events are still scheduled to take place elsewhere in the city. So that answers my question. Arnolfini will continue to present a broad programme of contemporary arts in Bristol Blah, 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 blah. The guidance covering what is deemed political activity for arts charities is complicated. It's also the case that what activities might fall under the remit of this guidance can change depending on wider events. So, yeah, it is quite tricky, isn't it? I think people are seeing this. You said binary earlier about making things yeah. in, simplistic. It is quite a tricky situation, I guess. It is. And I guess I, I would rather not add oxygen to that kind of binary, whose side are you on, which I think is really dangerous in the city. For us, we have um, experience of putting on these types of events. We work with the chairs really hard to make sure. For me, all art is political. It should be political, but appropriately political is the key thing. So we just worked really hard to make sure that was the case. It's a tricky precedent though, isn't it? And I think that's always the thing with, with art and I'm doing um, quote marks now, a degree of censorship, um, where that line is. And I suppose art itself is by definition always trying to push and find where that line is and deliberately and consciously stepping over that sometimes to be disruptive. And I wonder the city like Bristol, seeing an organisation do that doesn't play out that well. But again, that's probably just from a certain section of Bristol, I suspect. 
Yeah, I'm sure there are people who haven't even heard that it's happening. I certainly wouldn't want to be in their position or like at the moment having to deal with the complexities of this. I'm just really glad that the events for the Palestine Film Festival were really well attended, where people were grateful to be able to have an opportunity to connect with those stories which is so important to understand at this time that it was great it was great that we were able to do it for sure and i'm not we're not going to go delve into the into the political situation i think that's another podcast in itself so i'm not censoring this anyone that's listening we're not no we're not censoring (laughs) a political conversation it's just that we haven't got enough time to go into it there needs to be in a bit more depth and nuance future stuff now really claire but uh, for me is where do you see and hope uh, the watershed to be in the next five years So we've got some really exciting plans around retrofitting the building. It's a Victorian goods shed. If you come in when it's raining, there'll be buckets on the floor and our electricity bills are very high and we're committed to environmental sustainability. So there's loads of work we're doing around that. And I'm particularly excited about thinking about the public space around Watershed. For anyone who knows the city centre, the Cannons Row behind us is a bit horrible. It's owned by the council and it's car-oriented a bit dirty and we would really like to do some work around making that a pleasant place for resting for pedestrians closer to home we're going to be opening undershed which is a new gallery downstairs so that will be an immersive art gallery so to see new work um, that is using creative technology So that's really exciting for us. And January is always banging for films. So January to March is when all the Oscar contenders get released. So watch this space, really, for brilliant stuff being released. We've just, there's a film called Priscilla coming out, which looks absolutely brilliant. That's um, just been confirmed at Watershed for late December. So we're excited about the film. And, and in terms of the leadership side, uh, been around uh, 40 years, particularly in cinema, I'm talking about now, a le- leading organisation. Could you see your role as supporting the rebirth where these big multiplexes are f- failing a little bit, if that's the right word, or they're certainly out. We've had one closing Bristol recently, as we discussed. Is there a counter narrative to this, which is community cinema returning in these places? And the watershed could play a strategic leading role in that. Absolutely. The thing about multiplexes is they don't really sell films, they sell popcorn and that's how they make their money. We already run something called Film Hub Southwest. We give out grants to people who want to run film festivals, who want to set up film venues. We give out all of the money that the BFI has for that kind of activity across the Southwest. So we are in active conversations about supporting that kind of activity and we'd love to see community cinema flourishing. Yeah, because, you know, there's an era, isn't it? I remember talking to my dad. So he grew up in Eastern, Eastville area, as I did. And on that main stretch from Stapleton Road up to Fishponds Road, it's about three cinemas that, that are now, when I think it's just like an old derelict thing, you've got like the Van Dyke Forum pub up in Fishponds. You know, these were packed to the rafters, apparently. My dad said you'd be queuing outside on a Saturday afternoon for an hour and a half to get in. And these were community cinemas. That's where cinema started, wasn't it? Yeah, and that's everything for me about cinema as an art form. Like, it's democratic, it's cheaper than, like, live arts generally. It's mass available. So, yeah, well, I'd love to see that. A thriving film culture is good for everyone in the city. We have no delight in those two big cinemas closing. We think it's worrying for everyone. So, yeah. 
It's been good talking to you, Claire. Is that, do you want us to give a little Christmas message to anybody? Or? Well, I think at the point where you've had enough of your family, you've eaten too much, <laughs> then Watershed has some great films yeah. on, so come I'll, down. All right, I'll be down there at 11 a.m. on Christmas Day then. <laughs> sure. In that case, yeah, on my own, sat outside. Yeah. yeah. Lovely. Thanks, Claire. Thanks very much. Cheers. Many thanks to Claire Reddington, the CEO of The Watershed, for talking to us on Bristol Unpacked. And we will be back next time with another great guest and fantastic topic. I'm Neil Maggs. Big thanks to our production team from the Bristol Cable in collaboration with Ession Noise. Also, Blue Dot for our music. <laughs>